Hello, I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the first IC Alpha podcast, where you'll be hearing about the week on the markets from myself and Phil Oakley. Before we join by Phil, let me just talk you through our new podcast plans. We'll be running three podcasts from now on um, each week. The first of these, the IC interviews, we'll be talking to leading figures from the world of politics, finance, economics and business to get insights that might be useful to investors. We'll also be doing uh, a second podcast replacing the investment hour called Not Your Usual Finance Podcast, which we'll be looking at in each week in detail at a particular theme that's caught our attention. Then Phil and I will be doing the IC Alpha podcast, where we will be discussing the markets and what's going on. So, Phil, what is going on this week? I think as far as the market's concerned, it's pretty much the same as it has been for some weeks now. Um, tech companies still seem to be flavour of the month. I think there were signs of a bit of a wobble last week, and then they've all come back again. Um, the market still seems to move on virus talk or vaccine talk. Um, I think what's, what is interesting now is I think that um, there's, there's a, a sort of growing theme about currencies now. I mean, we've talked, talked a lot about the US dollar. And the US dollar has been in focus last few weeks, particularly the weak dollar. And this week, we've seen the, uh, the focus switch back to the pound. Um, because of largely what's going on with um, the government's chats with the uh, with the European Union, which don't seem to be going so well. No, they're going really badly. Which seems pretty much like everything the government touches these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Shocking. Yeah, absolutely shocking. Um, but it's an important issue. It's an, it's an important issue for uh, for investors and. Um, you know, I, I'm a sort of, sadly, um, a sort of long-term bear on the pound. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot of weaknesses within the UK economy. We've seen it rally um, largely on dollar weakness. And you just start thinking that perhaps people took money out of the dollar and parked it in the pound just to spread their money about a bit. But um, now there's a a return to the focus on the, on the fundamentals of the, of, of the UK, of UK PLC, for want of a better phrase. And I don't think people like what they see. And um, I don't blame them. I, I, think, I think there's a lot of problems here. So, so what, what are you worried about most in terms of the UK economy? What, long-term or short-term? Both. Long-term, long, long the, the issue is that I think the economy is fundamentally weak. Um, it doesn't produce enough. It consumes too much with borrowed money and is still massively over-reliant on the housing market to get lots of things going. And, and that's not sustainable. And it's difficult to see, short of you know, radical action, probably by the government, um, and probably over a long period of time, um, what's going to put this economy back on the right track? And short term, I think the key the key thing now for the economy, uh, twofold, 
One is, one is what happens when the furlough scheme comes to an end. And then the other is what happens with the negotiations on um, trading access to the, to the EU single market. Now, on the, on the sort of trading front, the economy front, I actually think at the moment the economy is doing all right. I think it's coming back quite well. And I, and I base that on just what I see with my, with my eyes, you know, locally, um, talking to people who own their own businesses, talking to tradespeople. You know, they're busy. People are spending money. There's a lot of traffic on the road. And park aside, you know, the well, well-cited problems that we've got in, you know, the travel and leisure sectors, I think the rest of the economy is actually bouncing back reasonably well. And I think you've seen that confirmed as well in some, some trading statements and some results that we've seen this week. You've seen a lot of pent-up demand, you know, in retail. For example, Dun, you know, Dunelm put out very strong figures um, for its summer trading um, period. Forterra, the brick, the brick maker, um, which has been very downbeat for the last nine months and has been revising down profit expectations, seemed a bit, a bit more upbeat this week. And then Travis Perkins as well is saying, you know, there's a similar uptick in construction. So I think for now, things have come back probably as well as people could have expected. Do you, do you not have a concern, though, that this is, um, you know, as you say, the result of pent-up demand being unleashed and is, is merely a temporary phenomenon? Yeah, no, I'm concerned about that. I am concerned about that, and I'm concerned. I'm concerned that you know we get a lot of people coming off furlough who don't get their jobs back, and they have less money in their pockets, and therefore there's less money flowing flowing around the economy, and the economy dips down again. Yeah, I'm I am very worried about that. I mean, because I because I look around. I mean, I'm, I'm back up in London, and you know it's not as busy as it was. Um, and, you know, you go out to local restaurants where, where I live and they're not as busy as they were. So, yeah, there, there is some bounce back. And, you know, maybe things like, um, you know, home improvement or homewares are, are, you know, the result of pent up demand being unleashed, people buying things they weren't able to do before. But, but, but generally speaking, I, things seem a bit quieter than they were previously. You know, maybe not as quiet as they were at the height of lockdown, but, but we don't seem to be back where we were before. And this is a consumer-based economy we're talking about here. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think, you know, there were signs that the economy was weakening before, before we got to lockdown. You know, growth, growth was weakening. And, and you were seeing, not just, not just seeing that in the economic statistics, but you were seeing that in UK-exposed stocks, companies talking about the UK market. Things were slowing down. So, you know, I mean, we're never going to know this, but we could have been, we could have been in a recession anyway. Um, and now, now it's a question of, you know, where do we go? And it's, it's very fragile, very uncertain. And, you know, the last thing the country needs on top of this is a government playing Russian roulette with the European Union on, you know, Trying to trying to get some form of trade deal. I know it takes two it takes two to tango, um, and it's a subject that I'm loath to discuss in detail because it's so toxic. 
But I think, you know, whatever side of the debate you're on, um, the past is the past and you try and make make the best of what you've got. And I think that the government's making a total mess of it. And, um, you know, it, it, it concerns me that the, the, if the government carries on the way it's going, then, you know, you could see a big loss of confidence in, in the UK. And you'll see that reflected in the exchange rate and maybe beginning to see that now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have worries about the government generally. I mean, you know, we've, we've got some new rules coming in. Um about uh you know how we deal with covid in in a, in a week or so's time um and, and you know a lot of a lot of the government's um reaction to covid seems seems i mean bizarre to say the least um you know encouraging people back to the office but then telling telling people that they can't you know have more than six people in their homes i spoke to a friend who lives in australia and uh, you know we are a laughing stock in terms of our response uh, to covid in terms of the government's response to covid they say you know you had a choice between saving the economy and saving lives and you didn't do either um and you know my, my worry is now that they've realized that and, and are trying to get the economy back on track but it's too late you know the city remain. I wouldn't say the city is a ghost town as, as it was when I when I first came back here, but it's still not what it was. No, I mean obviously I've not I've not ventured into London for six seven months, and I don't visit much anyway, as you know. But um, the government the government is behaving like a rabbit in the headlights, and whatever it just it just seems to be making almost very sort of panicky inconsistent decisions and what what people are crying out for is a a very clear simple message that is consistent and they're not getting it and um you know we need it yeah and i think this makes life very difficult for businesses that are trying to get back on track you know my brother runs a small catering business. Life is very, very hard for them. We've talked about this before, you know. For, for, for certainly for traders in the hospitality sector, this is this is an absolute nightmare. And actually, that brings us neatly on to, to, to one of the companies you wanted to discuss this week, who had some results, which is Fevertree. Um, and you know, they are also at the sharp end of of uh, of this uh, this this standstill in the hospitality sector. Um, I mean, I didn't think their numbers looked that great, but. Um, but the share price has recovered somewhat since the uh, the lows of March. What, what are your take on these results? Um, mixed. Um, I think I think most people assume that you know those who follow the stock quite closely know that about half of the UK business is selling into pubs and bars and restaurants, and the fact that a lot of them have been shut for a long time means that they are you know the results were going to be bad. They were bad. Uh, the sales were down 66% in the first half. Um, some of that demand shifted to supermarkets, off-license, convenience stores, and that put the sales up about 24%. But overall, the UK sales were down 20%. The European market, as well as a much more on-trade market than, 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 than any of the other markets, and of course that suffered, where they have seem to have done quite well is in is in the US, and um, they they're learning very quickly here. Um, it seems to me that you know they went into this market with the wrong price point. I think I think they went in. It's a very expensive product for what it is. Something that I am well, something I don't like about it. I think it's overpriced. 
And I think the American consumer uh, felt the same. And they've cut prices in America, in American supermarkets, and American consumers are putting fever trees in their baskets. But it's come, you know, it's, it's chopped about 300 basis points off their gross margin and probably will continue to do so. The other thing as well, um, and whilst the, the, the US sales were up nearly 40 percent, it's coming from a very low base, but it's also being supplied. That, that market is being supplied from the UK. So it's going into container ships and then it has to be stored in warehouses and then it has to be shipped around the, the United States. And that is very expensive. And what Fever Tree is going to have to do, I think, um, is that it's going to have to team up with independent bottling companies to make the stuff for them in the US. Um, that will probably come with a little bit of short term cost. But if they can get that right, it could, could come with a lot of efficiencies. But I think it's going to be a while yet because I think you need America is such a big country and so hard, you know, from a logistics point of view that you need a lot of sales volume to make, to make, you know, investments stack up. And I'm not sure that we're there yet. Well, no, I mean, 27, 27.4 million pounds worth of sales in the US doesn't sound like a, a particularly uh, large scale business in a market of that That's size. The, yeah. That's for six months. For six months. Um, but I mean, nevertheless, it's it's still pretty small in the grand scheme of the US drinks market. It, it's very small, yeah. Um, it's um, you know in, you know you need to be doing you know several several hundred million really to to sort of start making making a dent in this in this market, and and we're you know we're a, we're away from that. Um, but I think I think they deserve a bit of credit. I think they've worked pretty hard here, and. Um, They've they've made the mistakes and they've reacted to them pretty well, um, but you know this you know the, the 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 view of this company's ultimate earnings power, COVID aside, you know it's come down massively over the last last few years. You know if I, if I look at if I'm looking at this company just over a year ago, and we look at forecasts for 2021. You know, analyst consensus back in sort of July, August last year was about 78 pence of earnings per share for 2021. And it's now, I think, uh, 51p. You know, and so even and even even 59, 60p for 2022. When, you know, I imagine a lot of analysts are forecasting some kind of recovery. And, you know, you put the shares on 60p of earnings at the current share price. It's on 35, 36 times earnings. And, you know, we talked a few minutes ago about, about you know, UK economy slowing down. And I, I think that Fever Tree was slowing down in the UK. And it needed the US to take over. So I still think that whilst they've done some good things on, on the US, um, and we factor in a recovery of earnings into this, these shares still look very expensive. Yeah, especially, especially as the outlook is, it remains very, very unclear. We, we, we have no idea, you know, what the, uh, the next phase of this pandemic is going to look like. I remember, look, you know, thinking back when Fever Tree was flavour of the month, 
Um, you know, there was, a, there was a discussion going on on Twitter about which share would get to 40 quid a share first. Would it be Fever Tree or would it be Games Workshop? Now, Fever Tree is about 20 quid now. Games Workshop is over 100. And uh, they've, they've put out an amazing statement this week. And I know, I know you're, you, you, you like the statement. You're still a bit wary about the shares. Look, I, I, I think this is a very, very good business. I think it's really well run. I think the, I think the strategy, the levels of customer engagement, product development, first class. Can't fault it. My 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 issues with this is is you know it comes down to the to the basics. Two two very basic things. In the revenue visibility with this company is never very good. You know the management the management you know whether the management are playing it cute and trying to trying to sort of low ball and be be conservative. I'm not so sure. I, I just think that genuinely that they haven't got more than a few months' visibility on revenue. And th- therefore, predicting this business for any, any sort of meaningful period of time outwards is really difficult. Now, taking, taking that on board, you then, you then have a business which is very, very high fixed cost base. And what that means is, is that the profits are very operationally geared. And that means that profits change. The change in profits is meaningfully more than the changes in sales. And you've seen that this morning. You've had a fifteen percent or so increase in sales, and um, you've had a sixty percent increase in profits. Now, when this business is in a sweet spot as it is now, then a revenue surprise leads to an even bigger profit surprise. And therefore, an even bigger upgrade in short-term forecast, and the share price tends to like that kind of thing. Now, the issue with operational gearing and visibility is that they can work the opposite way as well. And you know, you, you had a little bit of a flavour of it earlier this year with the COVID and the impact on the business, and you saw profits fall back. Now they've come back really quickly, and. Actually, what's what's a positive is that you've seen the internet sales pick up the slack from the shops, which is good. And I suppose bottom line on this for me is just very simple: is that and maybe and, and I'm prepared to accept that you know there's a level of ignorance on my behalf here, but I've tried tried to look at the company quite a lot, you know, in the last year or so and understand it, and. The fact of the matter is this, is that no one seems to be able to predict this, not the management, not, not, not city analysts, and, and not shareholders. But the, but the surprises are positive. And whilst the surprises are positive, the share price goes up. Um, but then the valuation comes higher. The expectations baked in for the future become more stretched. And I think the risk goes up. And... I just, I just think that what's, what's the characteristics that are driving this share on the way up have the potential to drive it the other way. And nobody knows when it will turn. It doesn't look like it's going to turn any time soon, but it, but it may well turn. And it may well slow down. You, you make a really interesting point in your uh, your alpha write up this week that you, you, you know you sold these shares out of your fantasy SIP, but but you were following the, the lead of the directors who sold out at seventy three pounds a share. 
Which reinforces your point that perhaps even they were, were really unaware of, of, of just how well this business would do um, throughout the COVID crisis. Well, yeah, there's that. But I think, you know, directors were selling, I think, at 30 quid a share as well. So, um, I mean, my, my view on the directors, is I think they're very, very good at running their company and done a fantastic job for the, for the shareholders. Um, they, they perhaps don't own as much of their own stock as they should do. Um, but what the point is this, if, if they had any kind of visibility, you know, COVID aside, use that expression again, they would have been, they surely would have been loading up on the shares if they, if they had the visibility that trading was going to be as good as this. They, you would think they would be loading up, perhaps they wouldn't have loaded up, but you'd think that somebody would have loaded up in the senior management and they would have guided, guided the market accordingly. Um, and I think the fact that they haven't, you know, raises the question again, you know, how, you know, this question about, you know, earnings and revenue visibility. And I just think for me, for, this is what makes me uncomfortable about it. Um, when it's good, it's going to be really good to you. It's going to be really kind to you. Um, but eventually it, it probably, it probably won't. Obviously, I'm not wishing ill will on this company at all. I wish it every every success. Um, but I do think that people should be mindful of the mechanics that are driving this higher and how it can, how, it's like the wind, it can change direction. Do, do we not think that there's a, a possibility that um, royalty income as, you know, it, it licenses more of its intellectual property to games companies, uh, television production companies, that this, this is the real sort of potential surprise upside that, that could come here? Yes. Do you, are people not buying into this concept? And, and you know, as well as the, the, obviously the strong operational performance from the, from the, from the actual figures business, uh, the Warhammer business, that there is this, this, this potential massive surprise on the upside that, that could come from royalties at some point? I'm not, I'm not sure about massive. Maybe, it might be massive. But I think one of the issues on this is that the company says very little about its royalties certainly publicly. Um, and, you know, the outside investor ha- is a little bit in the dark, actually, how these royalties actually work. You know, how, how, you know are they done on game sales, uh, downloads or what have you? How long do they last for? Um, and what the potential magnitude of them is? People get excited about them because they are pure profit, virtually pure profit. Um, so it's an incredibly lucrative source of additional earnings. Um, but it's, the question is, you know, those, those licensing income is only as strong as the, other, as the company or product that's licensed them. And some, some will do quite well and some probably won't do as well. But the, the fact of the matter is that they're a little bit opaque. A bit more finger in the air stuff. Not quite that, but, but it's like, I, I think... I think that the market could do with, it, with knowing a little bit about them, if, if at all they can say anything about them. Yeah, they're not massive numbers right now. I think it was £3 million uh, in the, uh, the statement that they've just put out against two last year. So, so yeah, maybe that, we're still waiting for that big surprise. Uh, a little bit more information would be useful. Should we talk about, should we talk about Frontier quickly, which had some, had some results this week? Um, it's also in the sort of entertainment world. Um, 
I get the feeling you prefer this one at the moment. Yeah, I think I probably do. P- part of the valuation aside, um, there's a lot of similarities actually, or there's you know quite big similarities between the two. Um, I've not really looked at this company before until until this week, and I have to say I I looked at it for quite a long time, and I, I, this you know for quite a few hours, and. I know you probably need to do more than that, but what the time I did spend on it, I really like what I saw with it. I, I, I think this is a company that communicates what it's trying to do and what it's doing really well. And you know, you look at you look at the numbers and they're starting, you know, they come through. And what what impresses me about this is that the, the business is essentially based at the moment around core four core games. And the main one, the main one sort of launched, the 20, so you've had launches in 2014, 2016, 2018, 2019. And this is a company that seems to be very good at creating games that people play for a long time and actually increase their use of it. So, so their, their first main, main game, uh, which launched... Um, seven years ago, it's had its highest numbers, highest user numbers ever last year. And, you know, you're getting 60% of the revenues are coming from um, are coming from the first three games, whereas the fourth game, which was released about nine months ago, has been the fastest, um, the fastest growing game that they've ever had. And like Games Workshop, I think one of the reasons, going back to Games Workshop very quickly, I think one of the key changes within Games Workshop that's really, really put a rocket under the company is its creation of a community, a gaming community, um, warhammercommunity.com. <clears throat> and Frontier seems to be really good at as this. Well, they're making, you know, hours and hours of content for their gamers on YouTube or Twitch TV. And this is building up a huge amount of customer loyalty, customer goodwill. And the games take a long time to play, and then they keep developing them. They keep adding new bits on, and they keep adding new bits of revenue. And this is this is like a sort of snowball effect. And then you combine it with the stuff that they've got in the pipeline. They've, they've thrown a lot of investment into game development. So the pipeline and the frequency of the games is coming through. They've licensed, they've actually licensed um, a Warhammer game um, from Games Workshop and also a Formula One game. And then there's another game, which they haven't announced. And then on top of that, they're also publishing games for third parties. And all the resource that they've put into that is creating a vast pipeline of growth. And whilst at the moment, you know, you've got a bit of a drag on the cash flow, the real bull case for this is that you have got a business that has proven itself that it's not a flash in the pan, that it can develop a game that could keep on growing you know delivering customers and users a long time after its launch and then you add new stuff to it and you can see why people like it 
I mean, it, it seems to be a very sort of a American way of running a business, a very Amazon way of running a business. You know, you're making a lot of money. You've got these fantastic products or services that people want to buy. Um, but instead of just taking that money out of the business, you're plowing it back in to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, this is the kind of business that I would have thought every investor should be looking for. And that the valuation, and that the valuation therefore, doesn't necessarily reflect the, the true potential of this business. And perhaps we shouldn't worry about it so much. I agree. I agree. I think, you know, the, the company's in growth mode. It's, it's investing a lot of money, which are, you know, is a drag, a drag on its cash flow at the moment. But once these games mature, and there's still a lot of maturation to go on for, for the games, the Jurassic World game, the Planet Zoo game, which are the latest two, two games, they still got a lot of maturing to do. Once they, once they mature, they will start generating a lot of cash flow. Um, which can be reinvested, and then you get, you know, you, then you get the other stuff coming through, and you know the release rate of the games as well. I mean, they they've now geared up the workforce and the development team so that instead of releasing one game a year of their own, and don't forget, you know, one of the key strengths here, they've got their own proprietary technology which can do this, and it's proving to be very good. So instead of doing one game launch a year, they, they think they can go to two game launches in a couple of years' time. And the same with the with the, the third party business, and then you then you see and then you've got the licensing games that are coming through as well. So you've got three things, three growth drivers potentially coming together at the same time. And it seems like the business has invested enough to cope with it. And what you're left with is with, you know, it's like there's elements of this which are almost like a software business because, you know, all your distribution is digital. 97% of games sold through digital downloads. I mean, yeah. So the cost amazing. of that is, is virtually nothing. And therefore, and therefore each incremental game or, you know, if it was a software company, like a software license is incredibly profitable. You know, you've got gross margins of about just short of 70% on this business, quite, quite similar to the sort of games workshop type level. But and, and obviously the licensing stuff is a little bit less because you've got to pay royalties back. But you've got, you know, you've got, a, again, you've got some operational gearing in this business. But you've got very low incremental selling costs on a very highly profitable product. And you start selling lots of this and you look at the valuation and you can see how this company can grow like stink for the next few years. Um yeah, and I, it's, a, it's a British success story. You know, it's based in Cambridge. Um, it's backed by its founder and owner. Uh, it's also interesting that Tencent, Tencent Holdings, the big Chinese technology company, owns nearly 9% of the stock of this as well. And it, it bought, bought in in 2017. You know, maybe Tencent will buy this thing eventually. Yeah, you, you can see a situation where that, that might indeed happen. Uh, gaming is obviously massive, massive, and getting bigger and bigger and bigger uh, with every passing day. Should we talk about, we've got time for one more company. Uh, it's been a very positive week this week, Phil. Uh, good to be yeah, yeah. back with, uh, with a... With a that's, what a, that's what a holiday does for you. Absolutely. Uh, so we're going to talk very quickly about Avon Rubber, um, a business I know you like, one that you still have in your, your various portfolios. And they've, they've made a little acquisition, a little acquisition, a reasonably sized acquisition this week, um, which looks really interesting. And uh, as far as you, you're concerned, really strengthens their position. Um, already strong position, in fact. 
Yeah, yeah. This this company is doing a lot of things well right now. Um, you know, it's it's a business that it's making highly profitable products, selling into governments, militaries, fire services, police forces, and it's very niche. And not a lot of people can copy what they do. And it's got an incredibly strong position. And it's selling more of them. And it's done a couple of things in the last, well, three things in the last year that have been really good. It's made an acquisition of, um, so it's diversified away from its masks, sort of breathing apparatus type business into ballistic protection. Um, It's got out of its milk business, which for me was not really going anywhere, was too volatile, not as profitable. And this week it, is, it has bought um, another business which does um, helmets, protection helmets and helmet liners, very profitable, um, very complementary to what it does in terms of products, but also um, it widens the, the customer base and it looks just a very, very solid business. Yeah, it's, it's paying with it's paying with cash, as I understand it, and that that's basically the cash that it that it uh, raised through the sale of the dairy business. So, pretty, pretty, you know, fantastic recycling of uh, of uh, or churning its portfolio to get to get you know something that's much more focused on uh, on one area. Yeah, and I think you can't help wondering whether it's going to start doing some more um, because it has it's got a couple of hundred million bank facility. Now, um, as you say, this this deal will be paid for largely with the proceeds from the milk business. And the other interesting thing is that it is going to change its reporting currency from pounds into dollars. And I've seen a bit of chatter today um, speculating whether Avon may may go for a U.S. listing. Well, it's I mean, it's a larger U.S. It's a larger U.S. business now. I mean, most of its customers are out, are out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd see that as a positive. Um, again, you know, this is a highly rated company, you know, 40 times earnings. Um, now, you know, we've had discussions about this. This is what the going, current going rate is for these kind of businesses. You know, games workshops or similar, similar multiple. Um but again, you know, the, the, the earnings growth is going, to, is going to come through, I think. You know, you've got the new contracts, you've got these acquisitions coming in, and they've paid a reason. You know, they're not overpaying for acquisitions either. This is the, this is the thing. This, this is a, a company that is going out and making some really smart acquisitions, um, tagging them on to a business. And this is the key. Acquisitions work when you don't pay too much for them and you bolt them onto a business that's already doing well and you are not, you are not doing it, to, you're not making them so that they're so big that they um, disrupt the rest of the business. I, you buy a company that is materially you know, either bigger than the existing business or a very large chunk of it. And you know, Avon, Avon is just being managed really, really well. And, and, you know, it's proof, you know, you can be a downer on bits of this country and so on, like we have been in the on the economy. But there are some really good companies out there. Unfortunately, you have to pay a lot for them. But you know, there's some superb businesses. Um, they're few and far between, but there are some superb businesses there. And Avon 
is right up there as far as I can see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, if, if it does disappear off to the US markets, then, uh, well, it doesn't really matter because you can buy those shares over there anyway, as we've often encouraged our, our listeners to do. Um, wow. So, yeah, that was an incredibly bullish podcast, Phil. Uh, most unusual for us. Um, I guess you could describe all these companies as, as COVID winners, well, with the exception of Fever Tree, um, but COVID winners in many ways. Yeah, they, they are at the, the sharp end of, of the trends that are currently uh, that we're currently experiencing. So, um, yeah, worth coughing up for that sort of thing at times like this. Cheers, Phil. Thank you, John. And if you want to hear more of Phil's thoughts on the companies we discussed or some others, including Associated British Foods, then sign up to Alpha to read Phil's latest Alpha report, which he produces every week. I'm John Human. Thanks for listening to the IC Alpha podcast. We'll be back again next week. See you later. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.